So we got started a little bit late today, and uh, because fortunately there was an accident on Rudat, that's what I've heard. Um, my wife told me that I now must cut out all of the boring parts of the sermon. <laughs> Don't know what that means. We have been in a series in the Gospel of Mark. I call it Following the King to the Cross. And so we're doing a slow reveal of the person, the character, the work, and the purpose of Jesus Christ. Hey, Violet, can you do me a favor and shut those doors back there, Max and Violet? Thank you. So we are in the uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 6 this morning, verses 1 through 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. I will read it for us. Hear the reading of God's word. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy, merciful Father, uh, you have brought us here today by your grace, by your grace alone. Apart from your kindness, we would not get out of bed in the morning. We would not breathe. The neurons would not fire in our minds. Our hearts would not beat. And yet by your grace, by your power, you hold all things together. But not just that. You did not just start us like a clock, like a watch, and let us go. No, you stayed with your people. And you are bringing us out by your mercy to save us, continually save us by this gospel, this gospel of Jesus Christ. And so once again, we ask that you would show us again his rich and abundant mercy. We ask this in the name of, of you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So a lot of people I'm sure have heard now about the meteoric rise and the catastrophic downfall of Elizabeth Holmes. Of Elizabeth Holmes. You can see a picture up above me. Elizabeth Holmes started her company called Theranos when she was 19 years old. She dropped out of Stanford, started this company, and in just a few short years, she had grown her company to be worth over $9 billion. And it was all based on the promise that her company could provide blood tests that were simple and nearly painless. No more blood draws, just a single prick of the finger. And by this one drop of blood, hundreds of tests could be performed. It would truly revolutionize the medical field. Now, behind the scenes, the problem was that the technology to perform these tests did not actually exist. And honestly, it was probably physically impossible to do what she had been promising. But she pushed forward anyway. And now we know she broke all sorts of laws, injured patients along the way, 
and lied to everyone around her, including her investors. Some have called it the greatest scam of all time. Now, I believe that one of the most, I know, pretty crazy. We can debate that later. The most fascinating part about this story, though, especially when I've read the book and the articles and listened to podcasts about it, is how she was able to fool everyone. Everyone. Despite the growing evidence against the technology, despite this terrible, weird, odd secrecy within her company, employers, investors, and those in the media believed her, and they propped her up, and they loved her. Even when they faced the facts of her deception, they did not change their minds easily. People wanted to believe her. People wanted to believe her. Now, that is not surprising, of course. You know that humans have a hard time with the truth. We are people steeped in bias. We are neck deep in our own preconceived beliefs and morals and values. Jonathan Haidt, a sociologist, wrote a book about this a few years ago called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. He says this, when a group of people make something sacred, the members of the cult lose the ability to think clearly about it. He says that morality binds and blinds. A Roman historian 2,000 years ago said this, said the same thing, for it is a habit of humanity to entrust to careless hope what they long for and to use sovereign reason to thrust aside what they do not fancy. And that is a problem. That is a problem. Because everyone inside this room, and I would say everyone in the world, is on a quest for truth. We are here to learn about the world, to learn why we are here, why there is something rather than nothing, and quite possibly to learn about this man we call Jesus. Will we listen? Will we set aside the truths that make us feel good, that just simply undergird support the things that we've always believed to be true because they make us feel right? and go after what is actually true because that is what it will take to follow Jesus. And not just once, but over and over and over again. So how do you follow, how, how do you follow Jesus? Three points, and starting with this one. To follow Jesus, doubt, doubt. Mark 6, 1 through 2 says this. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Astonished. I love that word. In the Greek, it actually means something close to to be so amazed as to be practically overwhelmed. That is how they were taking Jesus that day in the synagogue. He's speaking. He's doing some sort of miracles. They know about him. And they are astonished. So astonished that they are overwhelmed whelmed by him. And so they start to question him, right? They start to question who he is, what he's doing, what he's saying. That is very normal behavior. When something shocking comes to us, something hits our senses, some new truth comes to our minds, we question it. That's normal. Mark 6, 2. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his 
hands. Let me say first that it is not wrong to doubt. Questions are not bad. Christianity, more than any other religion, is patient with our doubts. Jude 122 says that believers should have mercy on those who doubt. Surely Jude is saying that because he had either interacted with or heard about the character of Jesus Christ, how Jesus would interact with doubters. Even after he had been raised from the dead, even after Jesus was standing there in the flesh for all to see, he was not dead any longer. Still, he allowed Thomas to come to him and put his fingers into his body, into his healed over wounds. Doubting is, in some sense, important and necessary. However, is it important, however, not all doubting is the same. Not all doubting is the same. There is a doubting that leads to the truth, but then there is a doubting that leads away from it. And that is because some doubting is insincere, self-justifying, self-protective, which is what is happening ultimately with this crowd. So on the one hand, it's interesting because they believe and they see that Jesus is this incredibly gifted teacher and powerful miracle worker. They see his prowess, his power. And yet, on the other hand, they cannot square what they're seeing with this other reality, with this other truth that they know Jesus from when he was a boy. They know who Jesus is now. And so they say, is this not the carpenter? And what they're really saying is what? This is a poor, uneducated, uncultured guy. Or when they say, is this not the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? What are they saying? They're saying, we know this man's family. We know that they are nothing special. No power, no prestige. Most interesting of all, they ask, is this not the son of Mary? At first glance, it doesn't seem that bad. But in that day and age, you always mentioned the male parent, not the female one. The son of so-and-so. Why don't they say that he is the son of Joseph? We know Joseph is his father. And the answer is because they know the story. They know what had happened so many years before in Bethlehem. They likely believed that Jesus' birth was illegitimate. Jesus, they are implying, is a bastard child. Why are they so skeptical? Why are they so offended? The answer is that he does not fit the version of the truth that they want. Jesus does not fit the picture of the Messiah that they had hoped for. Everything about Jesus challenged their beliefs, his teachings, his actions, his power. It is dangerous to them. It is dangerous. His teachings, his actions, his power challenged their very identity. And so they are so put off, so caught off guard that they are offended. How are they offended? They are offended by his gospel, his love, and his power. I want you to think about what he has been teaching them this whole time. The kingdom of God, this kingdom of the gospel, the kingdom of the gospel. On the one hand, Jesus is telling them not that they are great people and they just need to find themselves. No, he's going around telling them that they are lost. 
that they are more sinful than they know, that their sins condemn them, that they will be judged and punished eternally by the eternal God. In other words, he is telling them that humans are not perfect, far from it. And so he will say later in Mark 10, 18, no one is good except God alone. That is offensive. This morning, I'm going to do a very quick uh, sermon illustration on the spot. Ethan told me that my drumming was too loud. Maybe it wasn't sinful, but I can tell you in my heart in that moment, I didn't like it. That's how bad I am on a Sunday morning playing to the Lord, and I say no. No one is good except God alone. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you doubt your own goodness? But then even more radically, Jesus teaches grace. He teaches that what saves a person is not their goodness. That's why he says it. What saves us is not self-effort and internal virtue. What saves us is the grace of God, the grace of God given to us when we entrust ourselves entirely to Jesus. This is completely opposite to the world. For ages and ages and centuries and millennia, this is opposite from what the world has believed and taught. It is what I call Santa Claus justification. You know what Santa Claus says, if you're good, you will get presents. If you're good, you will get presents. If you are bad, you will get coal. And we have taken this so far, at least in the United States, that we have concocted and introduced an evil little elf on a shelf who works for Santa and watches all of the kids' every move with his cold and dead eyes. The gospel is not, how can I earn my place in heaven? The gospel is, how can it be that I should gain the love and mercy of God? Now, this means on the one hand that, of course, all of us can be saved. But grace is only grace. I'm sorry, that, only, that of course, the best of us can be saved. The gospel is the best of us, of course, can be saved. But grace is only grace if anyone can receive it. No matter what a person has done, no matter what they will do, if they trust on Christ, they can receive his mercy. That is offensive. But not only is he teaching grace, but he is living in it. Maybe that's what they're really angry about. He is living a life of grace towards all men, women, and children. He is touching lepers. He is eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. He is associating with pagan Gentiles. In other words, what Jesus is showing them is that those who follow him will love all people. Those who follow Christ will show mercy to the poor. They will comfort the sick. They will bring close those who are struggling. It is not a person's coolness or wealth or power that should draw us to them. It is simply the fact that they are made in God's image and that God loves them. Do we believe that? They are offended by the gospel, by his actions of living out the gospel, and now they are also offended by his power. Offended by his power. It is fascinating to me that on the one hand, these are men and women who are acknowledging the power of Jesus. He is performing miracles in their midst. 
He is healing people, casting out demons. He is raising children from the dead, and they still reject him. Why? Because on the one hand, he does not exhibit power in the way they want. He is not brash and arrogant. He is not a mighty ruler like Saul. He is meek and quiet and poor. But on the other hand, which is so fascinating to me, he is terrifying to them. He has power that is unlike anything they've ever experienced or seen. It is a power that they cannot use for their own benefit. It is not a power that can be voted out, wielded, run away from. But they try. They try to run away from him because they know that if they trust on Christ, he will demand everything from them. He will be Lord over their money, their sexuality, their freedom. He will be Lord over their careers, their families, their time. Everything is on the table with Jesus Christ. He will demand your life. And so we cannot be our own masters and Lord at the same time he is our Lord. Either he is Lord of all or he is Lord of nothing. Friends, in order to follow Jesus, we must begin to doubt our own doubts. We must doubt what we have been taught, what we have put our faith in, what we are born believing and begin to trust this man. Or we can say at this point number two, to follow Jesus, we must honor him. We must honor him. Mark 6, 4. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He could do no mighty work. Does this mean that Jesus' power is limited? Maybe he's like a magician. You know, magicians, they need very, a very controlled atmosphere, a very trusting people to pull off their tricks. So maybe Jesus is just a bad magician. And we know this cannot be true because he was healing people on the side of this crowd. So we have to ask the question, why no mighty works? Why didn't he do this to show them that he is the God of the universe? And the answer is that he refuses to show them his miracles because of their unbelief. We see this over and over in the Gospels. For Jesus, his miracles were not magic tricks. His miracles were, miracles were intended to display who he was, to point to his purpose on the earth. And his purpose in his miracles was nothing less than the restoration and reclamation of the whole world. And so the reality is that he does not perform miracles so that we would believe him. The warning and teaching are in the offense itself. I will do no miracles because you do not have faith. To see my power, to take hold of my power, you must believe. Or as the text says it, we must honor him. That is what they were not doing. They were not honoring him. How do we honor Christ? How do we honor Christ? We honor Christ first by crying out to him, by crying out to him. Mark 6, 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. And so no matter what he does, some men and women and children cannot believe it. They cannot see it. 
no matter how many miracles, no matter how skillfully he preaches, they doubt him. And of course, he marvels at this. But I don't think that he's just marveling at how bad they are at faith. I think he's marveling at their inability to see how bad they have it. They are lost. They are living in darkness. They have no hope. And yet there is Jesus. He's standing in front of them. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, ready to accept them, to love them, to provide infinitely for them. And they remain, as C.S. Lewis, in the slums, playing with mud pies. He says it this way, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so we honor Christ and we call out for him. When we cry out for him, like the Israelites cried out to the Lord when they were under the impression of the Egyptians, we cry for him to release us from our oppression, from sin and darkness, and to bring us into his life, to provide for us. We honor Christ with our cries for help. We honor Christ with faith. We honor Christ with faith. Mark 6, 5. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few six people and healed them. When I get to heaven, I want to find those people. I want to find these few people that Jesus healed when he We do not know their names. We don't know what kind of sickness or illness they had. But we do know that they had faith. Despite the shouts of doubt and offense from the crowd, these men and women pushed it away, pushed it out of their minds, and they went and found Christ. They honored him with their heart. They sought him with faith. Friends, if you want to be healed, and I mean completely healed, healed from the inside out, you must have faith. You must honor Jesus with your trust. You must be amazed at his life, grateful for his love. You must feel great joy at his salvation. So we honor Christ by crying out to him, by having faith, and then by working. We honor Christ with our works. A letter of James, he says somewhat controversially that faith without works is dead. I'm sure many of us have read this before. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have any works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's do some basic theology here. Very, very, let's be very careful. James is not saying is that uh, he's not saying that our works save us, that our goodness saves us. But on the other hand, he is saying that our works, our good deeds, prove what we believe. It proves that we are children of God, that we have been resurrected 
in life and in spirit by him. If a husband says, says that he loves his wife, he loves her, he shouts it from the rooftops, but he gambles all of their money away. He has affairs. He is abusive. We can say honestly that this man does not actually love his wife. But if he shouts, I love her, and then he gives himself for her. He sacrifices in all ways to care for her and love her and protect her. We can say that he does love her. And so with Jesus, we cannot say with our words, we love you. I love you. I am your biggest fan. And then not do what he says. That makes no sense. If you love him, you will obey him. If you love him and believe in him, you will live your life, your moments with him at the center. Before we move on, I just ask you, how can you honor Christ? How have you failed to honor him? Last point this morning. To follow Jesus, we doubt, we honor, and then nothing. To follow Jesus, nothing. Jesus marvels at the unbelief of the crowd. He can barely believe it. He's the one offering them infinite riches and joy, and they choose slums and mud pies. And it is easy for us from our vantage point 2,000 years later to look down on them, to look down on them and say, uh, we are better than you because we know. We know better. We believe. But we cannot do that. And that is because Jesus is still astonished at our unbelief. We must admit that we have not believed him fully, not yet. Every time he calls us to follow him, we hesitate. Every time he calls us to sacrificial service, we distrust him. Every time he sends trials our way, we question him. Our bias is part of us. And so we must admit that on our own, we will not believe. But the miraculous and wonderful thing is that Jesus did not stop. Despite our unbelief and self-justifying doubt, Jesus did not walk away. He kept going. The most beautiful verse in our passage, I think, is verse 6. And it says, and he marveled because of their unbelief and, it keeps going, and he went about among the villages teaching. But friends, Jesus would not stop until he was rejected completely. We know that at the end of his ministry career, Jesus was put on display by Pilate as an accused criminal. The mobs of people weren't only questioning who he was, but were now calling for his death. And yet he was not guilty. He was not a murderer or stealer or blasphemer. He had broken no law, and astonishingly, he had never sinned. He stood them perfect in every way, and they still rejected him. But even then, Jesus did not stop. He kept going. He loved us unto his death on the cross. For that is where he felt the weight of full cosmic rejection. Where he took on all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our unbelief, the punishment for every 
sin. At the cross and then at the resurrection and then at the ascension, the truth of this was fully displayed. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In the end, there is nothing we can do to earn our way with him. In the end, there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. What saves us is not us, but him. Will we believe? Will we continually be saved by this power of God? Ray Orlinda, pastor from Nashville, said this wonderful thing to his church a few years ago. He says, we live in a city and in a world that ignores Jesus. Honestly, sometimes we ignore him. But we must not be happy that the real Jesus is still ignorable in our city and far beyond. We do not accept that. We are making it our mission. And I'm asking you today to make it your life mission to make the real Jesus non-ignorable in our city and far beyond. Everyone of us can be involved because this is not for our spiritual high achievers. This is for broken sinners. God's power comes down on weak people. So you are the one he wants to use. Where, what are you going to do for Jesus that just can't be ignored? What are we going to do together that can't be ignored? Make the G- real Jesus non-ignorable in our city and far beyond. And friends, in some ways it is very simple because all he is saying is we must believe. He is offensive. He will come to us and he will tell us things that we do not want to hear. But we need to hear them. And these things will give us life. And then we begin to live them out in front of our friends and our family and our neighbors to his glory and hope for their salvation. Let's pray. Lord, my favorite passage of the Bible is the man who came to you and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe you, Lord. I believe that you are the risen King of kings, the Lord of lords. I will stake my life on it. But every moment of every day, there is a battle waged by my flesh, waged by the world, waged by the devil. It tries to get me and everyone in this room and every Christian to run away from you, to turn from you. And so we ask you, O oh Lord, that we believe, would you help our unbelief? And in that struggle, that beautiful struggle, we know that you will be with us, that you will care for us, that you will not reject us. We are now no longer under condemnation. We are your children. May we learn to live in light of your great salvation. Help us to be a church that lives in light of your great salvation. May we make your son non-ignorable. We ask this in his name, by his power, by his strength. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more time.